Look, it could happen to anyone. I mean, if she just fell down the stairs. I mean, I just, it just seems so fucking pointless. Uh, the police found some photos on your dad's computer. They were uh, homosexual photos. Keep on looking for the truth. One day you might trip right over it. Welcome back to the official companion podcast of HBO Max original, The Staircase. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. On this week's episode, I'll be speaking with series co-showrunner Maggie Cohn, as well as James Renner, an investigative journalist whose entire career has revolved around true crime. Today, we're going to attempt to figure out how one makes a television series for HBO Max based on a well-known true story, one that no one, including those who lived it, can say for sure what happened. Sure, we'll give you some great behind-the-scenes nuggets. But as you probably figured out from last week's episode, we're hoping to do something even bigger than that. Like getting to the bottom of our collective obsession with true crime. And I think we come pretty damn close on today's episode. First up, Maggie Cohn. Welcome, Maggie Cohn, co-showrunner and writer of The Staircase, to the podcast. Hey, guys. You know, here we are in episode two. Right. And there's this great moment in the episode where the the French filmmakers are trying to decide what the next project's going to be. And he's thinking a wealthy white family and someone puts in front of him the Michael Peterson case. And he says something to the effect of, Let's see if he's interesting. <laughs> a bit leading, yes. <laughs> so French, uh, let's see if he's interesting. Yeah. And I just almost fell out of my chair because I'm thinking to myself, poor Jean-Xavier <laughs> has no idea what he's about to get himself into. But the audience does. And part of the pleasure of this series is that you added on this extra layer of story. And that's the making of the documentary and the film crew and the twists and turns that happen in their story. And this is also when I think audiences understand, oh, wait, this isn't just a retelling of what happened. There's a whole other layer of trying to understand truth, storytelling, narration, and everything in between. So I was wondering, at what point did you and Antonio Campos decide that this was a layer of story that you wanted to have? I think right off the bat, um, we knew that showing the construction of a documentary was fundamental to the to the overall episode. I mean, the overall season. Um, it, mm -hmm. it plays into the idea of our bigger theme, which is that justice and truth are story. It is about storytelling, um, and so using the documentary team as a device to show how stories are constructed, how you decide which shots to show, um, and mm -hmm. how those shots then inform the viewer's perception of what they're seeing and thinking. So we, mm -hmm. it, was, it was always part of the story because it has to do with that larger theme of what is storytelling. Um, and then, of yes. course, seeing that documentary storytelling 
shows like just one version of it. And then you kind of then can use that as a way to get into the idea that also that the prosecutor and the defense, they're telling stories too. And that all of this is just one big story. And I think that then gets to the idea of what is truth. And truth is also just a story. And it just depends on who's telling the story and then how somebody receives the story and the bias and the, you know, what they're bringing to the story when they hear it. So um, it was it was always such a fun and interesting way to comment on ourselves making a story about a true story and showing that there is no truth because look at it. We're showing you how it's made in, in a documentary room and now we're writing a, a narrative. And so it really is a kind of a bit of a, like a self-reflexive device. Yeah, I think people sort of over overuse the word meta, but in this case, I, I was avoiding feel like it. It's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to just rip a bong hit and just say, "Wow, that's really meta, Maggie. That's meta." No, I mean but, it was thrown around but, a little too much in the writers' room, so I think I I was naturally trying to avoid it. it no, but I but I actually in this case, it's actually true, and as a as a narrative device, it's perfect because. You have a background in television writing. You have written and produced series with Ryan Murphy. You did American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. How did you approach this project versus your work working in the like Ryan Murphy, American True Crime Story world? I mean, I think fundamentally I approach storytelling in a, a similar fashion, which is... Um, you know, absorbing as much of the facts as possible and then realizing that when you're using like a variety of source material that's been vetted, you, you even find in your research that material contradicts itself. (laughs) One person, like one book says one thing and another book says the exact opposite. And they're both true. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. and they're both, they've both been vetted. Um, and so for me, and that happened on Versace and it happened in the staircase. It's, it's to an extent, it's very liberating because you realize that mm-hmm. there is, you can never fully grasp what is reality and what is real. And I think, yes. you know, hopefully with the staircase, what we're doing is we're trying to expand like the true crime genre and really question the idea of truth behind it. It's about a family. It's about the impact of a documentary on a family. It's also about the fact that while a tragedy occurred that many people do believe is a crime, it's also about the loss of an individual. And that was Kathleen Peterson Mm -hmm. and the void that her Mm -hmm. absence created for this family and the trajectory that that absence then propelled the family Because I think we so frequently forget that when these tragedies occur, it's not just a crime or justice or figuring out what happened. It's also just the consequences of the lack of that person existing anymore. And um, that, that to me, was an opportunity that I've never been presented with to show someone's life before and then after and kind of just explore the impact of that. I think that something that Viewers, especially those of us who've watched the documentary, some of us multiple times, will really appreciate is having, is being able to see the family dynamic, being able to, I mean, Tony Collette as Kathleen Peterson. So incredible. Brilliant, (laughs) brilliant actress. And on top of that, though, the complexities of the relationship 
help inform your opinion of what you think may or may not have happened. And I, I, it's a brilliant device that you guys are doing because it's not just trying to give someone a richer character. It's also is what's creating suspense within the viewer in, wait a minute, they were having this problem? Oh, wait a minute, she just rolled her eyes. Or, gee, there's a lot of alcohol at this table. Or, you know, and, you know, we were sort of calling them Easter eggs, these little references, but I think they're more like breadcrumbs. Right. You know, of these behavioral things that happen. And did you guys talk about that and being really specific about these moments? Yeah, we did. I remember come reading, it's like, I believe it's a Malcolm Gladwell theory about plane crashes, which is that um, when a plane crash occurs, it's not one big mistake. It's a series of smaller mistakes that compound on each other and then tragedy occurs. So I think you know, not to generalize, but universally speaking, what happened in that staircase, whatever it may be, was a tragedy. And the reason she was in that staircase was because of these small little mistakes that then, or these things that compounded on each other. We know that she was working late. Well, there was debt. So, and there was infidelity. And there was an empty nest. And there was alcohol involved. And there was stress at work because of the company, um, you know, was suffering. Um, she was trying to hold everything together. And that's what put her in the staircase that night. And then the rest of it, we don't know. And so for us, it was really important to be very consistent about those facts because that's kind of the infrastructure that gets us to that night where then anything could have happened. And so it was important for those to be consistent and for those to be as accurate as possible. Those are the closest thing to truth that we have in this show, as close mm -hmm. as one can get mm -hmm. to it. So those, those breadcrumbs or those facts, to me, is like each one by itself doesn't lead to tragedy. But when you put them all together, then it's this alchemy that leads us to, you know, fate to some degree. It's an uncomfortable feeling because we all like to think we have a little bit more control of our destiny than we might we might actually have, <laughs> which I of think course, is actually absolutely. speaks to why we like true crime so much. We're desperately seeking yes. control. We want to know why things happen and why why people do bad things and why bad things happen to good people. But right, this this is a show about trying to get more comfortable with the idea that you can't answer those questions. While you were putting this together and you were creating this intimacy among the family members, and on top of that, within that intimacy, hints of conflict that are, you know, normal to any family, but take on a particular resonance where you know what's going to happen. How did you find that dynamic? How did you tap into that? Did you meet with all the family members? We did. Generally speaking, we limited contact. Mm -hmm. Um with any of the subjects, with all of the subjects. I think um, for us, since we weren't leaning towards one theory or the other, we actually did want to limit, mm -hmm. limit our personal bias. And since we couldn't guarantee that we could get an equal contribution from all sides of the aisle, we decided to kind of you know, do as much research as we could as individuals and as a writing team, and then go into the story. That being said, our researcher, Michael Matthews, interviewed as many people as possible. 
and Antonio and myself, we each spoke with uh, Michael Peterson and Margaret Ratliff, which were really informative um, interviews. But I would say we we didn't rely on that. That wasn't something mm-hmm. we felt we needed um, and felt ultimately that had we leaned into it, it would probably be detrimental to the storytelling. Right. And I guess that gets into what you're saying about the sort of larger theme of the point of retelling this story. It's not it's not a, a duplication of the existing documentary. It's an interpretation that when we look at true crime, are we kind of focusing on the wrong thing, which is did he do it or didn't he do it? You know, when this comes out, you're going to have people walk up to you in a bar and be like, so did he do it? Did he find out if he did it? And I think what this proposes, and honestly, it made me realize that I've been getting true crime wrong all these years. It's not did he or didn't he do it. It is did they prove that he did it? Did Was justice served? Exactly. But also improving that, that doesn't mean justice for everybody. Right. Kathleen was a mother. She was a daughter. She was a sister. She was a wife. She was a businesswoman. She contributed to her community. Her absence was felt, it it, it reverberated through the world. Guilty has a 180 degree opposite, which it it makes somebody feel good to hear that word, and it makes somebody else feel equally shitty when they do. Moving on, we have to talk about the way the series jumps around in time. This is one of those shows that if you're not paying attention, you could end up a little bit confused. It's like, I think Star Wars and the Marvel Universe have fewer timelines than this show. How do you keep track of everything? Oh my gosh, the cards on my wall? It was, I. the writer's room called it the murder board. <laughs> Because it was, every episode had different color cards for each timeline. My entire office was a 360 degree (laughs) of all the episodes mapped out, color coded, and then like different color Sharpies to show which was fact, which was fiction, and then how to connect each other to, and if we lose this one, then we can't do that in episode 106. So if we want to do it, we have to plan it earlier. It's just, yeah, it was, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's it's as giant pieces of the puzzle. And then it's also like a it's like a four dimensional puzzle. You have to time travel to fit a puzzle piece if you take one out. Exactly. So I think viewers need to appreciate how hard that is for for writers and then for directors to put together. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what was so great about Antonio and I is like when we got then into production is like he could focus on directing and uh, I mean, yes. kn- knowing the story very well, but I could focus primarily on keeping all of our heads of the department and everyone else on track with what we had to do, because in production, things can get lost, whether it's because of, you know, the pace or because of budget. And you have to be there to defend your decisions. And because if we lose this decision, especially when it comes to this show, it will impact the later episodes. Um, so it was right. such a great Right. Opportunity to work so closely with Antonio as he was directing because we could be in unison together. <laughs> and I could mm-hmm. be like, listen, if that's right, we don't get this this way. It's not going to have the impact that we were we we talked about like four months ago in the writer's room. So, like, let's make sure we like preserve that and protect it. In the first episode, we you know, we understand there's the tragedy. We understand there's going to be time shifting. But we also sort of see the family at that moment in time as together. Mm -hmm. And in episode two, we see that kind of crack 
because of information that's coming out about the case. And what I really think that viewers will appreciate about this series is that we get to follow the people who dropped out of the original documentary series and get a much richer sense of their perspective. And I think the one I, the character I feel most grateful to be able to follow is Caitlin because she's not in the, she, right. she and her side of the family fades away in, in the French documentary. The opportunity I saw in Caitlin was that she was somebody that did not want to believe that Michael Peterson yes. killed her mother and ultimately found herself believing that he did. She mm-hmm. wanted to believe that what she saw, which was a loving relationship, was truth. And that if she saw that, that must mean that uh, the man that she loved and who she believed loved her mother um, would never do something like this. And I think yes. that what she slowly came to realize was through her own subjectivity, which is which is fine because, again, that's what we bring to every every true event. We bring our bias. We bring our experiences to it, is that she slowly became aware that the secrets that Michael had that he said that he also shared with Kathleen, so it wasn't a secret from Kathleen, Caitlin believed that her mother would have told it, told her about them. Yes. And so it wasn't a fact that initially made Caitlin go over. It was the knowledge of her mother and her relationship with her yes. mother that began to make her doubt the relationship her mother had with Michael Peterson. And I think for me, that was a really interesting and compelling thing to investigate because it's that is truth. <laughs> that is like this feeling I have in my stomach where my intuition is telling me like, this isn't right. And then, much like that night, an incident after incident led Caitlin to believe that this feeling that I have isn't going away, it's getting stronger. And then ultimately, the autopsy photos were the thing that pushed her over the edge. And that even when she did come to that realization, which was, I think, a very brave one, um, because it did mean that she was going to alienate herself from the family that she'd been growing up Uh. with. Um, was that she didn't then assume that her sisters were bad and no one did really. It was just now that this fundamental decision has been made, of course you can no longer, we can no longer associate anymore, especially at this moment in time. We have two different truths. We have two different truths. It has to do with justice. Mm -hmm. They're on opposite ends of it right now. And when, when you're in it, it's impossible to kind of maybe find that middle ground. There are moments in the series where you recreate scenes from the documentary literally shot for shot. And there's an example that happens in the staircase where there's the vintage audio equipment and it is almost uh, mimicking what audiences saw in the original French series. Was that an intentional sort of nod to connect audiences with the original series versus the series? There were moments where it was great to kind of put those moments of authenticity in um, because I think it grounds your story in legitimacy, which it, it should be. Um, and it's again, it's viewers can look at it. If they've seen the documentary, they know what it means. 
if they haven't seen the documentary, it still feels legitimate. It's like a win-win situation. <laughs> um, and so, I, and I think like moments like that, that were so heavily documented and are already in the lexicon of the conversation of what the staircase is, it felt good to have those moments. And it's communicating that the authenticity matters. Exactly. And it's communicating that you understand that people know this series. There, there has to be elements of integrity up and down the production. Yeah, we're self-aware. Like we know because there's moments that are completely fictional. And we are as aware of those moments as we are of the moments that aren't. And like that to me, I think balancing that is a really great place to be. Um, because it allows us to explore story and fiction within the context of truth, which is how truth should be explored, because it exists, story and fiction is in every truth. Um, I mean, even just working with our um, scenic designer, Tammy, on the staircase, um, we had three staircases. One was clean, one was bloody, and one was green for the stunts. And so, you know, the, we would wheel the staircases in and out of the house, depending on what scene we were shooting. And so I worked with Tammy on, you know, we had the photos up of this staircase and it's like, you do, like when you're creating something like this, like you do, you have to remind yourself, like this is someone's actual blood. And we're sitting here on a, in a stage in Georgia like in a cramped space with like a variety of huge, enormous staircase pieces talking about where one little drop of blood's going to go. And it's just, you, it's important to remind yourself that you're there because of a tragedy. Um, and that, you know, I think, I guess in some ways, you know, going back to having that audio equipment in the staircase, it's about being respectful. Mm -hmm. Kathleen died and that is, the one thing that we know to be true is that she's no longer here. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, I think this this series comes at a perfect time where there maybe is kind of a, a recognition that with abundant podcasts and documentaries and stories out there, that having this perspective where you're sort of telling the story of how this story got told yeah. helps us remember the humans behind the story and that sometimes we can get a little into, not by any fault of our own, but kind of get into this puzzle or the excitement or the kind of charge of, of uh, an event. And again, it's not that we forget there's humans behind it, but there's a callousness with our curiosity that that we might sometimes forget that we need to check it. No, I mean, I totally understand. It's not intentional, this callousness or exactly. this removal. Right. I mean, I think 
as humans if we knew that at any moment we could die, which is true. Yes, that's right. Life would be very difficult to live. And so this denial is essential, evolutionarily speaking. But the other thing that's essential, (laughs) evolutionary speaking, is learning from other people's mistakes so it doesn't happen to us. Um, So that compulsion is is easy to understand and explain this is a work of fiction we are using the truth it is inspired by an event that occurred but ultimately this is fiction um the family dynamics that we create while relatable and authentic didn't necessarily happen um and Mm -hmm. i think using this family as a vehicle into it is essential because it does allow us to create that juxtaposition of well what is real we're on episode two And we will be speaking with a researcher that you worked with, Michael Matthews, in an upcoming episode. Mm -hmm. But I think it's early enough to say that when you were in this process, Michael's coming back with the stuff that he gleaned from interviewing dozens of people, getting information that's never been heard of before. Were there any moments where he would come in and say, look, guys, like hot off the presses information and that you were like, no way. <laughs> um, we all had a lot of knowledge about the staircase prior to getting into the room. So a lot of the surprises that the viewers will have, we already knew about prior to getting, like, you know, sitting down to talk and breaking the story completely. There are two incidences that I was like, this is great, which is a very similar reaction to when you know, the documentary team in 102 learns that Michael's bisexual. You you, you yes. see them tr- raise their fists in triumph because as storytellers, they know this yes. is going to be good for them. They know, oh, yeah. this, is a, this is a twist. But yeah, it was, there was definitely moments that he would come in and be like, this is the craziest thing. But there was, what also really helped with the researcher is kind of like, again, going to the storytelling, you'd be like, oh, God, this is a great idea. Like, how do we get to this this moment? You know, like in 102, you have this like juxtaposition of like a campaign fundraiser with the with the defense team. And we're weaving back and forth between these these two timelines, which for me, I'm like as a as a writer, I'm like, oh, this is this is great because what it does is I get to jump through time in two sequences by using the other sequence to to be move me. It's basically a commercial break. And so mm-hmm. and then <laughs> and then you get to interweave them because they're in the same location and then you get to comment on your theme about time. And so you would go to Michael like what could we possibly like what could a campaign fundraiser. Michael Peterson was running for city council after losing the mayoral race. It's like perfect. Great. You know, Got it's it. like so when you're telling a story and there's a researcher, he helps to, he equally helps to contribute in a way that's like, here's how you can rea- use reality to tell the story you want to tell, which is kind of, again, <laughs> another bong hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the remarkable things about the series versus the documentary is that we're able to see the Petersons as a family together and they're connection and intimacy seems so real. Were you ever able to get the actors together, you know, off the set to get to know each other and really help 
create that sense of family. Yeah. Um, I mean, so our actors and our team, everyone was flying in from literally all over the world um, to come to Atlanta. So we're all relocating there. And we're all, you know, we're going to be a, you know, a family on set, but they also have to, our actors have to portray a family. And so mm-hmm. it was great. We would get together. Um, it was great to see everybody come in and talk about their experiences and talk about their perspectives um, on that night and the characters they were playing. And, you know, much like the writer's room, it was a pretty safe place to explore, you know, you know, a variety of theories about what happened. Um, but ultimately what it was, was trying to, you know, create those bonds between our actors yeah. off of the set. So on the set, it would be slightly easier to replicate. So these these dinners that we'd have are kind of fundamental to creating that sort of um environment in those relationships. Um, And it was great because we have such talented actors with such a variety of experiences between them. And then the age Mm -hmm. range was phenomenal. And so it just, it was just a really special um, group of people. um, And uh, hopefully that's what comes across on the screen. Oh yeah. And and to have the the familial connection feels very very real when you're watching it and sometimes I guess the quarantine comes to one's benefit where they are going to spend time together and um and that time is like precious because we're not able to do a lot of other things that's actually well what's interesting that you said that and I hadn't really thought about it before is that it kind of also the quarantine does work in a different way which is it isolates you from the rest of the world so actually all Mm -hmm. you have is one another, which I imagine, again, don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, is possibly what the Petersons were experiencing. Oh. Uh, and, all, and the and the Zamperini and like the other family members too, like this thing occurs to them. And since it doesn't happen to everybody, it, it must feel a bit alienating. Um, and so, you know, with COVID, we, we kind of just had each other. Um, and so, yes, while it was difficult to see one another and create that kind of intimacy on on set because of all the restrictions like these dinners that we'd have it just it really it really it brought everyone together in a time that was quite isolating um and so it, it was yeah maybe that isolation actually worked to our advantage i'm not sure thank you maggie cohen for joining us on the podcast i really appreciate it thanks for having me If you like the time we spent with Maggie, don't worry. She'll be back with more terrific insights and observations in future episodes. Now then, I am especially excited about our next guest. If you love true crime and you're not following James Renner's work, you are missing out. His podcast, The Philosophy of Crime, is one of my absolute favorites. It's really the only podcast where I sit down with a notebook and take notes because I learn so much. That's not just about true crime but about philosophy. Don't believe me? When was the last time you heard Camus, Descartes, Occam's Razor, Existentialism, and Schrodinger's cat invoked during a discussion about true crime? That time is right now. Welcome, James Renner. Thank you so much for joining us on the Companion Podcast to The Staircase. I really, it's so great to have you here. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So first, let's start off in... Getting a little background, I know you have a, a, a ton of fans 
Um, but for those who aren't familiar with your work, James Renner, just do a quick setup of of what your background is and particularly your origin story about how you got involved in true crime in the first place as a young man. Yeah, my, my name's James Renner. I'm an investigative journalist from Ohio. I, I've got a couple podcasts, uh, Philosophy of Crime, True Crime This Week. Uh, and But I'm mostly known for my book on the unsolved disappearance of Maura Murray, True Crime Addict, which came out in 2016. True crime has kind of always been a part of my life, uh, looking back on it. So let's go back to 1989. I'm 11 years old, and my mother lives in Rocky River, which is kind of a workaday suburb of Cleveland. And that fall, I started seeing pictures of a girl on all the telephone poles, and her name was Amy Mihalovic. And she had been abducted from Bay Village, Ohio, which was the town next door. And that got got my attention because I'm like, what happened to her? And so even at age 11, I, for some reason, got it in my head that I might help solve this case. And so I would sit in the mall and I would look, I would scan the crowds and I would look for men who resembled the composite sketch of Amy's abductor. And if I saw somebody that resembled him, uh, I would follow him out to his car and I would get the license plate number. There was a payphone outside Aladdin's Arcade, and I would call in the tip. And that case was never solved. To this day, it's not solved. And it always kind of stuck in my, my mind, and I was always thinking about it. So when I became a journalist after, after college, it was the first big story I pitched. And so that, that became my first big article, and then the article became my first book, that was published back in 2006. It, it was it was a very eye-opening experience, a very interesting way to learn the craft of investigative journalism. You are abundantly familiar then with how one case can get under someone's skin, even like someone who doesn't necessarily consider themselves even a journalist. Like, how would you define the staircase if we look at, you know, Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line of 1988 as the, for me, the like, doc, and then the staircase, and then everything else. But that's me. What, how would you frame the staircase and its relevance in true crime storytelling as we know it now? Well, I, I'd certainly say the staircase is, is the first major true crime story of the 21st century. Uh, and it will be one of those cases that we study and revisit as long as true crime's a thing, it's a very important piece of the uh, true crime puzzle. What interested me right away is is here's a um, here's a novelist, here's an mm -hmm. here's an author, mm -hmm. and you know if anybody can spin a yarn or or tell a story to get out of a, a crime, you know he he, <laughs> he certainly has a lot of training in that. It's the type of thing that you'd see on Castle or, you know, Law and Order, the, the novelist that uh, decided to commit his own crime. You know, in your coverage, particularly with media coverage or watching how trials play out, how do you think the issue of his lifestyle, at least during that time, might have played into how people responded to Michael Peterson publicly and within the court? Yeah, you know, so 
you, you look at somebody from Michael Peterson's generation, and he, he's about the, the age of, of my parents and, you know, raised in, in such a way where homosexuality was um, still shameful. Mm-hmm. And even back in early 2000s, you know, we were still fighting for uh, equality and, and uh, the right to be married. Yeah. And um, so that was still going on in the background. And the only reason it kind of fits in with this case, you know, that, that doesn't make it totally salacious is the fact that we know Michael Peterson is very good at keeping a secret mm. um, and, and to everybody, you know, even to himself. So yes. once you know that he can keep that secret, then it's not a big leap to think, well, is he keeping the secret about what happened to his wife? One of the things you like to write about a lot is Occam's razor, which is a principle that states, all things being equal, it's the simplest explanation that is probably the correct one. Is that the case here? The thing about Occam's razor is it's only as useful as the facts that you've gathered. So if you haven't bothered to learn much about the case, it's very easy to look at uh, the staircase and Michael Peterson and say, oh, you just use Occam's razor. Obviously, the, obviously he did it. Um, but that, you know, later on, you, you find more facts. Um, what's important to remember about Occam's razor is it only works if you use the least amount of assumptions. Occam's razor is not a solution. Occam's razor is a tool that will get you closer to the answer. But you, like like a carpenter with a hammer, you have to know how to use that tool in order for it to mean anything. You know, in your own work, you certainly take the media, which is your profession, to task for elevating the juicy and the salacious in pursuit of ratings. And, you know, Michael Peterson himself was criticized, particularly by Kathleen's own family, for allowing a camera crew from France to come in, document his life, open up all the cupboards, and see what was there. So was that a terrible idea or a really smart move? No, I think that was probably the, the smartest thing he did during the, the course of this, this whole ordeal. Um, I mean, what a brilliant move uh, to bring them in and say, hey, I have no secrets, film everything, you know, talk about anything. And uh, it certainly starts to paint him as as a more open character, and you get to control the the, the narrative that way. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. It also, you know, in some ways, the the counter argument is it certainly it 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 shows that he can be cool and calculated when he needs to be. Yeah, right. So he knew what to say, sort of, and when to say it, and how to frame something to rebut maybe something he didn't get to. In a, in a court case, which kind of gets us to this perception of truth. One of the reasons why the uh, showrunner and director and writers really wanted to make sure we spoke with you is because they appreciate the way that you have defined what truth means within the subject of trying to report a story or how a story is told and how it can be such an elusive target when it comes to many cases, but specifically to the Peterson case. So I'd love to get your take on objectivity and bias in storytelling and how you kind of balance that tension. And particularly when you're looking at the Peterson in, in the staircase, how that might apply to that story. Oh, it's a subject that fascinates me. Um, and it goes back to the, the big philosophical questions of whether we can know if anything is true, ultimately. You know, all the way back to Rene Descartes, where, you know, the only thing we can know for certain is that we exist. Um, and 
you know, so, uh, you know, with the Michael Peterson case, in some ways, they almost work as like the Schrodinger's cat experiment where something's happened. Um, something did happen. And, and, and we have the results of that. The results of it is Michael Peterson's wife is, is dead. What we don't know is the how. And, and maybe ultimately, maybe that's not so important. Um, mm. we, we, as humans, we want justice. We want somebody to serve time if, in fact, uh, these women were murdered. Um, but ultimately, the universe doesn't care. The universe keeps going on. <laughs> I'm only laughing because I, I don't hear a lot of like true crime, you know, like true crime storytellers define something within a universal existential way. So that, I'm not <laughs> laughing because it's funny about murder, sure. you know. Yeah, no, but but I'm fascinated, you know, and you ask about objectivity and subjectivity and all that. The, a lot of people look at journalism and they're like, well, journalists have to be unbiased right. and the facts are the facts. And that's a lie that you've been told for decades by um, poor teachers and people that didn't really understand journalism. Every reporter has a bias based on how they were raised, how they were taught, what their personal beliefs are. And to me, it's more honest if a journalist is coming out and explaining that bias. Mm -hmm, right. And it's better to be honest about that with the reader than to pretend that you're some um, godlike, unbiased observer because that sort of thing never exists. All right. Well, James, take, let's take this to the next step and talk about how this plays out with a scripted series like this one that we are talking about for HBO Max. Obviously, a scripted show cannot cannot, and should not be held to the same standard as editorial objectivity, as a newspaper to art some such. But as someone who, you know, you also have projects in the works that are based on your true stories and nonfiction work. Um, where do you think that line between fact and entertainment if there is one, how is that defined? Uh, it's a that's a very good question. Um, it's you know I want to say that it's the responsibility of the viewer to understand that what you're watching is a serialized, uh, you know, fictionalized to an extent version of of what happened, especially in a series like this where it's based on a true story. Uh, but you have actors playing the parts of the real people. Mm -hmm. uh, you have writers that are filling their mouths with words that were not said in, in that sequence at that specific time. You are condensing characters, um, you know, people that two or three different people in real life suddenly become one person to make the narrative yes. flow a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And that's important because you want to engage the audience. You can make the best, most accurate as possible TV series about a case, but if nobody's going to watch it because it's boring, <laughs> why are you doing it? It's not going to. It's not going to help anybody. It's certainly not going to help solve the case. So, understand that the series is the 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 reason it exists is um, to draw you into the to the story, and um, it it's going to be. Uh, just for the sake of the medium itself, it has to be fictionalized in some way. The thing that I would love for you to react to is, all right, we make composite characters. Those things are an essential function of storytelling in an efficient and compelling manner. Now, in this series, they do something that I imagine is necessary but potentially controversial. 
Kathleen mm. Peterson, as a character, is brought to screen in this series, and she's played by Tony Collette. So we, what do you think about that? A whole cloth recreation of a person that we were never able to meet, obviously, because she was at the bottom of the stairwell in every right. other iteration of this story that we've ever seen or heard. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say it's it's an important addition, actually, because the person whose voice is most important in this whole thing is the person whose voice we've never heard before, mm -hmm. uh, which is Kathleen Peterson. Um, you know, so it, I, I think it's a, I think it's a bold move. I think it's very, it, it should be very interesting and, you know, I'm sure it'll be controversial, but at the same time, it'll, it'll, um, provide discussion which is what you want at the end of the day for any case like this. You just you want people to discuss it, to think about it, to to think through the the bigger ramifications of of what that means. And and uh, um, you know, so you know, she's like the ghost in the in the story. She's always there, but now we now she she has a, a voice of her own. I find that very interesting. So, the staircase was the first documentary series I ever binge watched. I got some copies of it in mid 2000s and I had my first kind of true crime hangover of feeling so insulated in this world that there were dark days afterwards, which gets me to this um, issue that I think we keep circling as those of us who follow true crime or those of us who create the journalism and the stories behind it. Is there anything to this potential mental health impact of immersing yourself in true crime? Well, I think uh, becoming obsessive about, about true crime is, is potentially very detrimental to the way that we view society. And it does make me a little um, scared <laughs> in some ways as both a consumer <laughs> and a creator of this sort of thing. And I, I try to be very conscious about it when I, when I write about it. So you got to be careful in assuming that because there are so many true crime documentaries out there, because so many podcasts and you're listening to them and you enjoy it and you like to think about those things, don't assume that um, we live in a dangerous world because of it. The The idea that we live in a dangerous world is, is, a, is a false narrative that is, has kind of been, been put out there because of how many uh, documentaries and, and, and stories are, are out there already. The way that we look at the world is kind of a result of the 24-hour news cycle. And so they began to fill it with, with you know, these crimes from around the country. And, uh, you know, we, we quickly became convinced that, you know, oh, um, you know, this, this, could, this could happen. This is probably going to happen to us if we're not careful, if, you know, we, we might get abducted and uh, um, if we're not careful or, or we could get murdered. Uh, but these are statistically very rare probabilities. You know, the crime rates have actually dropped since the early 90s. Um, so the world in which we live is very different from the world in which we believe we're stuck in. Um, and so there's the, there's a weird disparity going on. But the world is not as dangerous as you, you, you might think it is watching these shows. I am really intrigued by how you connect the dots of how we became fascinated, at least in this modern era, with true crime. 
So give me your true crime singularity theory because I've never heard anything like it before and I need to hear it now. Thank you. I'll try to condense it. Essentially, it boils down to the fact that as a society, we're going through an existential crisis and we're trying to find meaning in a world without meaning. We live in an absurd world. Read, read your Camus. You have to revolt against it. Um, and we're, we're trying to come to terms with that. And that is what's feeding this appetite for true crime because we're, we're trying to find answers in the, the big questions, trying to find answers in places where there really aren't legitimately hard answers. And so you ask, why, are, why, why is true crime so popular? Well, I dug deeply into that and I came up with a theory that I believe is accurate. I believe this existential crisis that we're still kind of coping with as a society, it all leads back to the unexpected horror of 9-11 and trying to make sense of this thing that is totally senseless and 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 huge and awesome in the worst sense of that word um and it was just such a personal attack on everybody and and our our way of living and and i think that's what's rippling through time is um everything that changed with 9/11 so we have this existential like what the fuck is it all for things can happen at any time there's no rhyme or reason and that plays into mm -hmm. how we potentially view victim perpetrator whichever you are there's a true crime that might happen at any moment and it doesn't make any sense exactly. <laughs> and part in part of exactly your job right in part of uh Jean-Xavier de Estrade, who is the director of The Staircase and the creators of this version, that's their job, too, is to help make sense of it and, and to create the narrative that might help make sense of it. Yes, but I think that might be the wrong way to go about it. I think I think what personally I think the only way to deal with that existential angst is to accept the mystery mm. and not and not put so much importance on the answer itself. If I could sum up what we need to do as a society in order to be healthier <laughs> is let the mystery be. Let the mystery be. We don't need the answer we think we do. Because, oh, because we just assume there has to be an answer, a logical answer, an outrageous answer. Mm -hmm. There is, There are no mysteries because everything can be solved, whether it's through the internet, internet or divine providence. And not everything can be solved because, you know, maybe we could know for sure what happened to um, uh, Michael Peterson and his and his wife. But we still have to go to bed that night wondering what the hell reality is in the first place. What are we we, we we're never going to solve that question. Why are we here? What are we here to do? What is this world about? And that is is what's eating at us. And we, we think getting the answers to these weird little mysteries will help in some way. But we're still facing the ultimate mysteries at the end of the day, and we have to we have to make peace with that. Is there anything to this that we actually fear within ourselves there's a capacity to commit a crime? And sometimes I'm thinking about how I might get out of it if I do it. Sure. Yeah. No, I think we all have uh, a dark passenger inside of us. Mm. Um, and, and to say you don't, I think you have to be in, in quite a bit of denial you know, we're still primates just a few thousand years out of the jungle um, where we have to dress up and, and pretend that we're, we're, <laughs> we're decent and we have to treat each other decently. 
instead of you know stealing for resources. Um, so yeah. we're still, you know, there's still a very basic animal inside of us. I totally believe that everybody has the capacity to commit murder in certain situations. Um, though I think most people uh, are generally good and and fight that. I think that's what means what it means to be human is to um, have mastery over that dark passenger inside of you. Um, and I think it's what separates us from the other the animals on on this earth um, and makes us so wonderful. I was uh, Michelle McNamara's editor uh, at Los Angeles Magazine. I was uh, the person who first worked with her on the Golden State Killer story. So I've seen firsthand um, one how I've, I've often said I'm not obsessed with true crime. I'm obsessed with people who are obsessed with true crime. Uh, as an editor, that's like where I live. I'm fascinated by other people's fascinations and how those stories get told. And I've seen firsthand, obviously, a lot of these trends and of these citizen sleuth and digital detective work. And on top of that, the stress and strain that it can have on a person's life. I mean, you, you James, have mentioned a few examples of that. But do you feel like I mean, there's obviously the stuff that happens to the people involved in these stories, but is there something to be understood in the stress and strain that it has on those of us who who cover it? I think it's a very important discussion to have and that we should be talking about the effects that true crime coverage has on the journalists that dive deeply into these cases, because it does... um, it's it's like uh it's like secondhand smoke it's it's secondhand <laughs> tragedy where you know you're you're not the victim you're not the perpetrator but you're close enough to them you've learned so much about them that you've uh, brought a little of that into your own soul into your own mind that can never be removed and um and that is dangerous in the same way that secondhand smoke is dangerous and there seeing this more and more and it started with journalists that were in that were embedded with um uh platoons in the Iraq war uh and mm. Afghanistan they'd come home and and they'd have symptoms of PTSD in the same way that the soldiers would and they realized that well even though they don't they're not holding a gun um they're still feeling they're still taking that that experience in and internalizing it and it's just as dangerous so you have to be aware of that and compartmentalize it. And I don't know any true crime journalist that isn't on some sort of um, antidepressant or anti-anxiety yeah. medicine. Just to be clear, there is no pharmaceutical sponsorship in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do agree with you. And I feel like because it, I think true crime has become part of such popular culture where there is an HBO. Now this will be the second HBO series that I'm aware of that chronicles a, a true story case with some catastrophic outcomes, but it's still seen as entertainment. Mm. And I don't know if folks understand, and this gets back into the sort of the truth, the bias, that there is a whole other blob of material and information and story that exists, that is filtered, packaged, produced, published, exported, that consumers never, ever see. Oh, sure. I've seen, you know, you've seen crime scene photos, so have I. Oh, yeah. You've seen stories that are like, oh, we can't run this. We can't, this is too, with Michelle's story, there were all kinds of decisions we had to make about what would be appropriate for mass audience consumption. And I don't know if people understand that, that they're getting a filtered view, a responsible filtered view. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Um, and how that's in your own work or maybe what people don't understand when we're looking yeah. at it is entertainment and true crime and it's juicy. Yeah. No, I, I think in some ways that the, a responsible journalist acts as a filter between the horrors of what really happened and what the, the public ultimately needs to know to process the story. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, we don't... <laughs> Uh, to our own design, some of us suffer from you know PTSD and the the secondhand trauma of these experiences. But we don't want, at least we shouldn't want to have our readers experience the same thing. Um, to, you know, so I'm I'm very happy that we're not running these stories in the newspaper with violent crime scene photographs or uh, the gory gory details of what really happened in these crimes because I I don't think those parts are what's important. Again, what's important is the story of this human that, that was lost or the, the crime that occurred and, and what that means to you know the greater society. That's, that's the point of these stories, not to re-experience the, um, the murder itself. Um, that would just be perversion. James, you've given us so much to think about, and I know that listeners are going to really appreciate your perspective on this saga that we've been obsessed with for decades. So thank you, James, so much for sharing your work. Oh, thank you. And thanks for for everything you guys are doing too. Anytime. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Maggie Cohn and James Renner for joining us today. We'll be back next episode with Michael Matthews, the production researcher you heard Maggie invoke several times on this episode to discuss how he sifted through an avalanche of information to help the writers organize this story. We'll also sit down with investigative crime journalist and human rights advocate Leora Smith to discuss the subjective and often reckless nature of forensic evidence. That episode drops tomorrow. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studios and David Urzua at Studio Awesome. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Fibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Yuryans. Legal by Diana Palacios. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you like the show and you have a minute, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream this podcast on HBO Max. See you next episode 